0: This talk is sponsored by Michael and Galit Friedman, in loving memory and Lilo Nishmas of George Friedman, Shlomo Benaria, whose yard site is today. It's such a pleasure, it's such a distinct honor to be here with you all today, and especially to be in Aish. I had the privilege of spending three and a half years in the Kollel in Eish in Jerusalem. In fact, my smicha comes from Aish. and walking all around the building and seeing all the pictures... And all the icons and all the logos, it's very evocative of those wonderful years. It's great to be back and it's great to see that the wonderful Ashthorn uh, Hill Community Shul is continuing the great legacy of Reb Noach Weinberg. And it's such a wonderful pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Today's talk is going to center around the Festival of Hanukkah and specifically about the idea of the candles that we're going to light, that we light every night. We're gonna begin with a battery of questions pertaining to the lights of Hanukkah, to the holiday in general. And please, God, I hope to provide a cogent, unified theory of what these candles represent and how we can maximize the impact of these powerful days. I want to begin with an interesting observation that I had. We know that there's 620 mitzvos that may have told you the 613. And that's true, there's 713 mitzvot, Torah Torahidic mitzvos, but we have seven mitzvos Dei and seven rabbinic mitzvos, for a total of 620, and the crowning achievement of the Jew is when they fulfill all 620 mitzvos. Of those seven rabbinic mitzvos, two of them involve lighting candles. Of course, we have the Shabbos candles that we light each week, and of course, we have the Hanukkah candles that we're going to light throughout the week of Hanukkah. These seem to be very similar mitzvos. You have candles in your home, you light them, but upon examination, they turn out to be very radically, even opposite mitzvos. For example, we know that we light the shamish, the extra candle on Hanukkah, because we cannot use, we cannot benefit from the lights of the menorah. Whereas the Shabbos candles are specifically designed for us to benefit from their light. In fact, you look at the Rambam. The Rambam tells us, It is permissible to use, to benefit from the lights of the Shabbos. And in the laws of Hanukkah, he tells us, It is prohibited, it's forbidden, to use the lights of Hanukkah. So, exact opposites. In addition, Shabbos is a very inward-facing light. What the Ram tells you you're supposed to have light in your home for you and your family. Whereas the lights of the menorah, they're very outward-facing. supposed to put them outside. They're supposed to direct towards the street. They're supposed to be there for public exhibition. In addition, the Shabbos lights are designed, or you have to light them, before it gets dark. Once it gets dark, it's too late. The Hanukkah candles, by contrast, can only be lit post-nightfall, after it is dark. It's also interesting that, you know, the Rambam, and it's based upon the Gemara, based upon the Talmud, he tells us that these are very important mitzvahs, and both of them are so critical, so important for you to fulfill these mitzvahs of lighting the candles, that on Shabbos, if you have no money, God forbid, to buy candles... Then you have to even go begging door to door to have the, to raise the funds to buy the candles. Now it's interesting, in the laws of Hanukkah, we find out that the Ramam adds a little bit. He says, if it's such an important mitzvah to light the candles of Hanukkah, that if you don't have money, you have to go begging door to door, and even you have to sell the shirt on your back. To me, this was a little bit of an interesting observation, that both of them, both of them are so important, both of them you have to beg, but the Hanukkah candles, you even have to sell your garments, to sell the clothing on your back. And finally, you know, the Hanukkah, it's a very dynamic mitzvah. You start with one, go to two, eventually end up with eight. According to Beish it's the opposite. You start with eight, you go back down to one. In addition, the Talmud tells us that there's all kinds of tiers in this mitzvah. The basic mitzvah is everyone, you just light one candle per the home. If you want to be and if you want to be very fastidious, meticulous about fulfillment of mitzvahs, well, then everyone gets their own candle. And if you want to be Mahadra and super-duper, uber-fastidious, well, then everyone lights their own candles, etc. I never saw that kind of discussion with the Shabbos candles, even though, of course, we know that uh, women light typically one candle for each member of the household. But still, like the, the Talmud has a whole discussion to talk about the various gradients of the mitzvah of Hanukkah and that does not appear by the midst of lighting the candles. So the first question I want to pose is, why are there so many differences between the lights of Hanukkah and the lights of Shabbos, and specifically for us, what do the Hanukkah lights symbolize, what do they represent, and what's the takeaway message? That's the first question I want to pose. I want to expand the subject by looking at the Hanukkah festival in general. We all know the Hanukkah story, the Greeks imposed devastating, debilitating edicts against Jewish practices. They interfered with Jewish affairs. They tried to stamp out Torah and Judaism, but the Jews were valiant and they fought back and they they hid their Torah books behind the dreidels and they even launched a rebellion and the Almighty was with them and they were a ragtag group of guerrilla fighters that just went up against the most sophisticated, capable, powerful army in the world and miraculously they won. And they get back to the temple, and they rededicate the temple to clear away all the idols, all the pagan remnants of of the Greeks. And, of course, the the miracle of Hanukkah happens. And, you know, one flask of oil miraculously lasts for eight nights. And the following year, they decide to dedicate a festival to this momentous victory, this momentous triumph of the Hasmonean lights over the Greek darkness, and we're still celebrating that today, 2,300 years later. That's the story that we're all told. So ostensibly you would say that Hanukkah is a testament to the victory 2,300 years ago. However, in the Midrash we find out that the idea, the concept, the conflict undergirding Hanukkah, it's not some isolated event that happened a long time ago. In fact, it is a much more elementary conflict that appears at the very, very, very beginning of it all. In fact, the very first verse in the Torah is introductory. In the beginning, this is what happened. So the next verse, which maybe is the first verse that gives us some information, we're told, The earth was empty, it was desolate, it was dark, there was the surface of the depths, there was, it was just emptiness, it was barren, it was void. And the Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the earth, the face of the water. So the world's pretty barren, it's empty, it's desolate, it's dark, there's depths, there's a lot going on in this verse. So the Midrash tells us that this verse is talking about the grand prospect of, of human and Jewish history. These four descriptions of emptiness, void, desolate, it's referring to the four exiles that our nation will have to endure before Messiah. When it says... Sohu, it was empty. It's referring to the suffering that we had under the Babylonians. When it says vo, desolate, it's referring to what we suffered under the Persians, the Medes, the Perm story. Vechoshech, and darkness. Ze, galus yavan. This is a reference to the suffering that we had under the Greeks. Because the Greeks, they darkened the eyes of the Jewish people with their decrees. They would even say, you have to write on the horn of an ox, you have no portion in the God of Israel, and therefore when it talks about darkness, the very nascent beginning, the genesis of the world, it's talking about darkness at the Barak, at the foundation of our universe is the concept of Greek darkness. And To me, this is interesting. You know, we don't have any grace period. We don't start off, we haven't even met Adam, there's no humanity at the very beginning, right, right away, we're plunged into these four exiles, and we read, read at the beginning, at the at the very first verses, the fabric of Genesis. We read already about the Greek exile and the darkness that it included, and we could say, as a result, that the triumph of Hanukkah is not again some isolated victory against a menace that appeared 2,300 years ago. It's something much more fundamental, foundational to the flaws that exist in the world. The have created a world, and it's our job, of course, to fix it. And it's it needs fixing because it's a little bit broken. How is it broken? One of the ways that it's broken is epitomized, is personified, is embodied by the Greek darkness. Ergo, we could say that the lessons of Hanukkah are not limited to that one episode in history, but really relate to everything that we do and to the mission that humanity and the Jewish people are at the vanguard of trying to fix. So what's that flaw that is represented by Greek darkness that we see a victory by the Hasmonean victory, that light over the darkness? What exactly is that? What is that fundamental flaw in our world that we see a little bit on Hanukkah how to fix? Question number two. The next place where the Hanukkah victory is hinted at in the Torah, is the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar, Parshas Bahaloscha. In fact, on Hanukkah we read the donations of the Nasim. the Mishkan, the tabernacle is inaugurated, and there's 12 days where the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel each bring this very lavish, extravagant gift to the temple, to the Mishkan, to celebrate the inauguration, and the very next parsha begins, Parshas B'haloscha. The Almighty tells Moses, tells Moshe, go tell Aaron when you kindle the Menorah, and He gives us the laws of of, of lighting the Menorah. So Rashi tells us, what is the juxtaposition of the donations of the of the princes of the Nesiim? Why is that put right next to the instruction to Aaron? To go like the menorah, because when Aaron saw all the princes, they were giving all these donations, 12 tribes of Israel, but the tribe of Levi is not included. And he got a little sad, and he got a little despondent. I'm not participating so much in the inauguration of the Mishkan. And Aaron was sad. And the Almighty is mollifying him, is comforting him. Don't worry, you have the menorah. None of them have the menorah, only you have the menorah. That's what Rashi tells us, the first Rashi in Parshas Bahaloscha, that Aaron is being consoled. He's not part of the Chanukah, Samizbeach, the inauguration of the altar in the Mishkan, but he has something which is even greater. He has the menorah. So the Ramban asks a few questions. He says, wait a minute. If Aaron needs to be comforted, why specifically is he being comforted with the menorah? What about the ketores, the incense? What about doing the work on Yom Kippur? He's the only one who goes into the night of flame, the only one who goes into the holy of holies. What about all the karbanis, all the sacrifices? What about all the various other things that Aaron and Aaron's fraternity, the Kohanim, they themselves do it alone? Why specifically are we targeting the menorah offering that Aaron does as that's being a fitting consolation prize that Aaron and his family did not participate in the Chanukah Semizbech, in the inauguration of the tabernacle. So the Rabban tells us something fascinating. He explains the Midrash, when it says that Aaron is being comforted by the fact that he has the menorah, that's not a reference to the menorah in the temple, and tabernacle, it's a reference to the menorah of Hanukkah. That here we have the inauguration of one mizbech, of one altar, the inauguration of one tabernacle, one temple, and many hundred years in the future, the children of Aaron, the Hasmonean family, Matisio, Matthias, and his children, these are the Kohanim, and they're going to spearhead the new inauguration of the temple, and they're going to have this menorah that symbolizes, that typifies this miracle of the second inauguration, and that's what the Almighty is hinting to to Moses to go tell Aaron, you're, you're, you're going to have your share, don't worry about it. So what Rosh Rabban says. Seemingly he's telling us that what's happening on Hanukkah, where the Kohanim are coming back to the temple, clearing away all the debris, all the leftovers of the Greek idolatry, and re-inaugurating it anew on Hanukkah, 2.0, that is actually greater than what's happening by the Mishkan. That's what Rashi is telling us. That's the point to the So we understand this Midrash. And there's obvious questions. I, I don't get it. We have one mitzvah, which is Doraisa, Torah mitzvah, all the stuff that happened in the Mishkan. And we have the Rabanah mitzvah, the mitzvah of Line of Lani the Hanukkah. How exactly can we equate those two mitzvahs? How can we say that what's happening in the second temple era the rededication of the Besamidish of the temple is equal and greater to what happened in the first temple, in the Mishkan, we know that the that those two are, are incongruent. We know that the miracles of the first temple and the miracles of the Mishkan they vastly outweigh those of the second temple, and certainly those have come, that come much later. How could we Comfort Aaron. How is, it, how is it fair to tell Aaron, oh, don't worry. You have even something greater. Than, is, this, is this really greater? Is the miracle of Hanukkah, is the inauguration of Hanukkah, of the altar 2.0, is that greater? It's an amazing insight. We have to explain what that means. And finally, one final question. We know that there is a wonderful, miraculous event that happens to the oil. An oil designated for one day lasts for eight. What an amazing miracle. Fantastic. Let's make a celebration eight days from then on ad infinitum. The question is, if you look at the sources, you find that there were loads of miracles that happened all the time in the temple, in the base of Dash, in the Mishkan. In fact, the Mishnah Perkir Avos 5.5, 5. tells us that there were ten Ever present miracles in the temple. It gives a whole list that no woman ever lost her baby because of the smell. It never smelled bad. There was no, there was no flies. Think about it. It's a huge slaughterhouse. Tons of sacrifices all the time. You would imagine it would be a hotbed of the flies. Not a single fly was found there. The, the Kohen Gadol didn't mess up on Yom Kippur ever. Even though it was raining, it's an outdoor. It's an outdoor pyre on top of the altar. It rains all the time and it never extinguished the fire. Miracle upon miracle that happened all the time that were ubiquitous in the temple. There's no holidays to celebrate that. There's no eight-day celebration. We have an eight-day festival dedicated to a comparatively minor one-time event miracle. Perhaps you may say, yes, yes, but this is a special miracle. It involves oil. It involves the menorah. Maybe you may make that argument. Well, even by that criteria, the Talmud tells us Book of Yom, page 39a. It lists a whole bevy of miracles that happened during the tenure of Shimon Tzadik. Shimon is also in the Second Temple era. And it says: for the duration of his 40-year reign as Qainala's high priest, the western candle of the menorah did not. Extinguish. So we have miracles that happened in the menorah, in the temple, that are vastly greater than the ones that happened a few years later. In fact, there is a Midrash that I saw for the first time this year. It's a Midrash Tanchuma in Parsha Tetzaveh, number three. And it gives a testimony of Rabchanina Sigana HaKohanim. So Rabchanina, he was the vice Kohen. He testifies as follows. I worked in the temple. And miracles happened all the time with the menorah. They would light it on Rosh Hashanah and it would not extinguish until the following year. I see your eight days of continuous lighting and I raise you a year of non-stop lighting. Eight day miracle? Take a 365 day miracle and somehow no one even knows that. I didn't know that. Maybe maybe you guys didn't know it. I didn't know it. It's a Midrash. The Midrash says that for a whole year, the candles remained lit. And we're making a huge, big deal for eight days at la- the it state of light. What exactly is so special about the eight-day Hanukkah miracle? So we have a series of questions here about Hanukkah, the festival in general, and specifically, what is so unique? What is the message of the candles. I want to suggest an approach. I want to suggest that every time we find a reference to a ner, a candle in Jewish literature, it's a reference to the soul, to the godly soul, to the heavenly soul that exists within us. And in fact, it's a clear verse in Scripture in Proverbs in Mishlei 2027, 20, Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam. The candle of God is the soul of man. And then it continues, the verse continues, Hoface kolchadri batten which searches out the chambers of someone's betan, which means the the, the innards. What I want to pay attention to this verse. The verse is revealing to us two very critical insights. Number one, ner Hashem the candle of God, the flame of God—is the soul of man. So we're told a the identification of the candle it's the soul, and we're also told the location of the soul, kolchadre button, which searches out the chambers of one's innards. Ch- cheder means a, a door or a room. It searches out the chambers of your beton, of your stomach, of your innards. Put that on the side. We'll get back to that in a second. The soul is referenced by the candle. Where does our soul originate from? What's its backstory? What did it go through before it came to our life or to our body? It's a very fascinating subject, and there are a lot of sources on that. I want to go through some of those sources. What we're going to discover is that the soul that we have within us, that candle of God that illuminates us internally, but it's kind of hiding in our innards, it's something which is very spiritually sublime. It's very holy. It's even holier, we're told, by the Ramchal than the angels. The holiest angels, our soul is even holier. We're told in Jewish sources that the soul is hewn from the Almighty's throne. What that means, I don't know, but it definitely indicates that it's something very holy. The Talmud tells the book of Brachos, page 10a. It says that King David, in the book of Psalms, he talks about, Baruchin afshiyas Hashem, let my soul praise God. It says that five times. Why does King David compose blessings, five blessings, let my soul praise God? Because our soul is the one that, it, that that's capable of praising God. Because our soul is the only thing that's similar to God. And it lists five similarities. The Talmud, Book of Brachos, page 10a, five similarities between our soul and God. And therefore, it's fitting concludes the Talmud that whoever has these five themes, these five characteristics, our soul can come praise the Almighty, who also has these five characteristics. It's amazing insight. The only thing that can really praise God is us, is our soul, the human soul. That's how holy it is. That's how powerful it is. The Talmud tells us elsewhere that the purity. Of the human soul is parallel to the purity of God and to the purity of of the angels. That's the Talmud in the Book of Need, page 30b. Your soul is holy, the angels are holy, and the Almighty is holy. They're all put on the same holiness pedestal. Moreover, the Midrash tells us that our soul is so powerful that it is synonymous with Torah. The Midrash tells us, our soul is called a candle. Ner Hashem Nishmasadam, that's our soul. And Torah is called a candle. Ki neer mitzvah v'torah or the candle is the mitzvah, and Torah is the light. And the mitzvah is indicating that our soul is something which is so powerful, it's like a it's like a Torah scroll. It's a veritable Torah scroll that's within us. It's this it's this otherworldly holiness similar to God. If using Torah, that is the soul, that's the candle that is within us. But our soul suffers the grand ignominy of being buried and being fused and being merged and being married and being united with our lowly body. And in fact, Demetrius tells us that the worst day of the soul's existence is when it's demoted. It's taken from the heavenly realm and it's brought into the physical. It's forced to marry and fuse with the body. And we get a very vivid description of what happens. The just tells us that at the time of conception, the Almighty has two angels. One angel is called Lila. And this angel is in charge of managing the primordial biological matter that will eventually comprise the body. And the money tells this angel what to do with it. It's told to cut it up into 365 pieces because that's the, the, the various limbs and sinews of man. It's determined if the person will be a male or a female, very strong, very weak, rich or poor, tall or short, ugly or handsome, thick or thin, timid or gumptious. But the one thing that's not determined is whether they'll be righteous or wicked, whether they'll be a tzaddik or a rasha. Once you have this one angel dealing with the body, so to speak, or the very primordial body, it's time to get the soul. And the Almighty tasks the angel who's in charge of the soul, go to the vault, the vault in which the souls have been waiting to be assigned a body since the six days of creation, Find me this and this soul that looks like this and like that. Each one of them has a different identity. Each one looks differently. Whatever that means, I don't know. And bring it to me. So the angel goes to this vault, extracts the right soul, and brings it before God. So you have two angels, each one of them holding the opposite sides of man, and now the fusion's about to happen. And we read that when the soul appears before God, it right away bows. It right away prostrates itself and bows before God. And the Almighty tells the soul, okay, you see that other thing in the hands of the other angel? It's time for you to bury yourself in that. And the soul is, is absolutely flummoxed by that suggestion. And it starts to stridently object to that proposal. It starts telling God, master the world. I'm content in the world that you created me in. I, I don't want to go into that thing that putrid drop, why would you do that? What's the idea? And the Almighty responds to it, well, the world that I'm going to send you into, it's a better world. It's the world that I designed you to go reside in. And despite the Almighty explaining it so clearly to the soul, the soul says, not interested. And the Midrash tells us that the Almighty has to take the soul and by brute force, forcibly inserted into the body. And in fact, it's put on suicide watch. Why? The Midrash tells us, again, this is sourced, that there's two angels that are appointed to station guard that the soul doesn't escape. The soul is so miserable at this notion that it's going to be married with the body that it wants to escape. And the Almighty has to, has to appoint us to station two guards to make sure that it doesn't run away. And the midrash concludes. They put him in there, and the candle, the nair, daluk al rosho, is lit on its head. The candle is lit on its head. As an aside, I want to point out that if you want to be terrified, read the rest of the midrash. It contains very dramatic and the spine-tingling descriptions of the various expeditions that the soul takes every morning and night with the angels for the duration of its nine months of gestation. If you want to read it? It's in the Midrash in Tanchuma, Parsha's Pikude, number three. But for our purposes, our takeaway from these sources is that the soul is very holy, the soul synonymous With Torah, the soul is on par with God in purity. The soul is the one thing that is similar to God, but it is forced into the primordial body and it remains, from the time of conception until the time it's born, it remains fused, stuck together to the growing zygote, fetus, embryo, child. What happens to the child next? What happens to the soul next? So the Talmud tells us that The child in utero has the candle perched on its head and it sees from one end of the world to the other. It has unbridled, unrestrained visions like a prophet. And the best days of a person's life are the nine months that it spends in utero. Amazing statement. And this is maybe the most famous statement of that Talmud. They teach the child the whole Torah. And as the child's about to be born, the angel comes, gives him a whack on his mouth, and the child forgets all the Torah, everything they experienced. And according to one version of the Midrash, the candle is extinguished. The candle that was prominently perched on his head is now extinguished. As an aside, I know this may be sacrilegious to say here in Aish, but rab wrote a book, What the Angel Taught You. Everyone's familiar with that book? The, the Angel Taught You. If you actually critically look at the Talmud and read it very carefully, you'll notice that it doesn't identify the angel as the teacher of the child. It actually identifies the angel as the one who makes him forget it. So maybe a more appropriate title would be what the angel made you forget. I don't know. But the Maharal says a very valuable insight. The Maharal says as follows. The angel does not teach you Torah. In fact, you know more Torah than the angel does. Because the soul, it's synonymous with Torah. The soul doesn't need to be taught Torah. It knows it all innately. When the child's in utero, the soul is on his head. The soul is prominently capturing its its attention, its consciousness. You don't need to teach the child Torah because the child knows Torah. However, at birth, when The soul is demoted, according to one version. The candle's extinguished. According to the verse, we would say, the soul is taken off its head and placed in its stomach. It's searching out the chambers of the innards. It used to be on the head. It used to be connected to the person's consciousness. But now it's been severed from the person's consciousness. It's in the stomach. It's buried deep within them. And as a result of that they forget the Torah. Not because the Torah was deleted, but because the person's access to it was severed. The soul, with all its Torah, it's still within him. It's still bursting with Torah. It's just that no longer is it on its head, no longer is the candle on its head. Now, it's in his stomach. It is searching amidst the darkness to try to once again get back to its place of prominence. The commentators are slain that we see two descriptions of the soul. The verse tells us the soul of man, it's the candle of God. And it's searching out the innards. It's trying to find its way out of the labyrinth of the person's intestines. It's stuck there, it's all the way down to the bottom. And we find in the midrash that the soul's on the, the soul's on the head. Where is it? The answer is that initially. In the earlier phases, it's it's prominent. It's by the head. It's associated with the person's consciousness. Now it's been demoted. It's It's been downgraded. Now it goes within the innards. And now the person's connection to it has been removed. It's possible for someone to even live their whole lives and not be aware, not acknowledge that they even have a soul. I remember hearing after Rabbi Noach passed away, Someone gave a eulogy and someone said that they remember of Noah with a little one of his children and he was holding his child like this and he was saying again and again, this is a soul. This is a soul. That was his mantra. They said he was holding a baby and says this is a soul. We need that because we can live in a world It's possible again for someone to live 80, 90, 100 years and never acknowledge that even contest the fact that they have a soul. How is that possible? Because you're not Connected to it. It's it's in your stomach by way of analogy, Unless things go horribly wrong, your mind is never thinking about your intestines. Suppose someone was having abdominal surgery. And the surgeon opens up the cavity and says, yeah, you know what? The appendix looks a little bit dangerous. Let me take it out anyhow while the person's under. Suppose the person wakes up and you ask them, okay, can you feel? Do you have an appendix or not? I'm not a, a gastroenterologist, but I would imagine that the person can't feel it because it's it's deep within them and, and their senses are not connected to their innards. What the matrix is telling us is that it used to be that your consciousness, your senses were with your soul and therefore you had its taura. Now it's like your innards, it's like your intestines, it's like your kidneys, it's like the parts of you that you know maybe theoretically that you have, but it doesn't capture your attention, your mind space, not dedicated to that. You don't even think about it, or it's possible to not think about that. But the Torah is still there. And I want to share with you something very fascinating. We know that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew all of Torah before it was given. We know that the Talmud says in a book of Avodah of Zarah, it's a, it's a Midrash, a Midrash Rabba. Everyone knows that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew the whole Torah before it was given. In fact, the Talmud tells us they even knew all rabbinic law. Now, the obvious question is, we come after Sinai. We've already had the Sinai experience. we already had Moses come and give us Torah, so we know Torah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they come before Sinai. There is no Sinai experience that they could have to absorb Torah. How exactly does Abraham know Torah? And the Midrash asks this question. It's not my question. It's the Midrash's question. Mehechan Lamad Avram avinu Torah. From where did Abraham study Torah? You know what the Midrash says? It says that his two kidneys turned into two springs that taught him Torah. You just read that, not knowing what we know already now. You're like, okay, this looks like uh, maybe there was a toe sofa. Maybe maybe there's a different text. What does this mean? That his two kidneys turned into two spewing springs of Torah? What does it even mean? This is the answer. What it means is that Abram had a soul like we have a soul. Abram's soul was holy like our soul is holy. Abram's soul was replete with Torah like our soul is replete with Torah. But for us, it's all buried deep within us. And our job is to try to surface it, to bring it out, to bring it to the forefront, to discover, to reconnect with our soul, to take our soul that's hiding within us and put it back on our head. That's our job. And if we did that we too would know Torah like Abraham did. Of course, now we have the great benefit of not having to look only internally for Torah. We could find Torah because we could go to the books, we could go to Moses, we could go study, and we could connect Torah externally. But the Midrash is revealing to us there's another way to get Torah to tap in to the latent Torah that is already harbored within your soul. doesn't mean that Abraham's kidneys had a nephrological miracle they started giving him podcasts in Torah. That's what it means? It means that the soul that normally harbors within someone's innards, Torah, all Torah is captured in it. It's synonymous with Torah like we saw. It's just hidden. Abraham, in his greatness, was able to rediscover that and to tap into it, to unearth his latent soul. And as a result, he rediscovered the Torah that was always there. I think this idea of the candle Initially in our head, a candle with all the connection we ever need, with all the holiness we ever need, the candle that's similar to God, the candle that has Torah. It's already there within us, it's just hiding. I think this gives us the architecture of what our life's mission is. You want to be holy, you want to be righteous, you want to be a Torah scholar, you want to connect to God. All that is already buried within you. You have all that. You already are a prophet. In fact, if you remember that midrash that we we spoke about, the midrash describes our soul talking to God. God says, get into the little drop. Soul says, no. Why do you want to do that? The subtext of that is that our soul's a prophet. It's a prophet on the level of talking to God directly. That's what midrash is hinting at. You want to be a prophet? You already are a prophet. The only problem is that you don't have access to to that portal of prophecy, you don't have access to your soul that already has all that holiness baked into it. You want to be a Torah scholar? You already are a Torah giant. You have to tap into it. Discover it. Reconnect to your soul. It's all within us, but it's buried in the dark and the deep abyss of our innards. Our mission is to access that powerful beacon of the soul and usher it to the surface. How do we do that? The way we do that is with Torah and mitzvahs. Torah is the light. Mitzvah is the candle. Those are the activities that awaken and ignite the candle within us. There's a sleeping giant within us, and our job is to initiate it. Our job is to awaken it. Our job is to ignite it. My grandfather, blessed memory, Rabbi Shlomo Wolbe, he said that he was in the mirror in Poland on Simcha's Torah. And the great Rabbi Rucham Levavitz was speaking and he said the following line. He said that a mitzvah is a match that ignites the candle of our soul. A mitzvah is a match that ignites the candle of our soul. We have a candle. It's dormant. It's... Within us, it's there, but it's functionally extinguished. And our job is to reawaken it, is to inspire our soul to once again give us light and once again get out of the misery in which it is incarcerated. And more broadly speaking, that's the Jewish mission. The Talmud tells us that this world is Dol Melalila. This world is comparable to night. Why? Because in this world, our soul is suppressed. Our job is to eliminate the night via mitzvahs, to await, to unearth the bittin that is our soul within us and to let its light shine forth. We can create harmony between our body and our soul. We can elevate our body. How do we do that? We have to take our soul within us and let its light shine forth be a light unto ourselves, our families, our communities, and of course, be a light unto the nations. This world is compared to night. In this world, we have to generate the light on our own. Olam my the Talmud tells us, there is no night. In fact, it's comparable to the sun, the Talmud, the book of Baruchos, page 57b tells us. The sun, the sun never has night, because wherever it goes, it's always sunny. In Olam in the next world, the soul is not relegated to our intestines. The soul is unsheathed for all to see. This world is the world of darkness. Here, we have to do all the heavy lifting. Here, we have to access the soul and let its radiance beam forth. In Olam it's done for us. The soul is bright, as bright as, as the sun for all to see. Step back to Hanukkah. The verse tells us that one of the fundamental flaws of the world—it's empty, it's barren, it's dark, it's desolate. There's darkness in this world that is represented by the Greeks. They are the nation that opposes our national mission. They're represented by darkness. The idea of a godly soul harbored within each person. That is what they stood up to oppose. They weren't about the internal world. They're about the external world. To them the body mattered not the soul. They truly embody darkness. They banned Torah. They banned mitzvos. They tried to perpetuate this world of darkness. And the Hasmoneans, well, they, they brought the light. They restored Torah and Mitzvos. They brought back the candle of the mitzvos and the light of the Torah to the Jewish nation. And that's what we symbolize and celebrate each Hanukkah. Let's go back to our questions that we started off with. When we talk about the Temple, the Besamidosh, the Mishkan, in Jewish philosophy, the Temple, the Besamidosh, the Mishkan, that is emblematic of Olam Haba. In fact, the Talmud tells us that Jerusalem of below is Parallel to the Jerusalem of above, there's a certain element of you walk into the temple, you're actually walking into the next world. The Talmud tells us that in the temple, when it was in its purity, you didn't need to make a fire on top of the altar to burn the sacrifices because a heavenly fire would descend from heaven. You wouldn't need to provide your own fire. The fire was there even without your work. We don't make a big deal about the ever-present miracles that were present in the first temple and when the temple was in its most pristine situation because that's Olam Abba. That's a world of total lightness. That's a world where it's not our actions, so to speak, that are evoking that tremendous beacon of light. It's it's there. It's present. Aaron is being comforted. Your light is greater than theirs. What it's telling us is for someone to come in a dark world and shine forth a light amidst the darkness, when someone could take their soul that's surrounded by darkness, it's it's drowning in the abyss of one's innards, and to take that light and to light that, that's much greater than having divine light present wherever you go. Indeed, we could even suggest, and the Talmud says this, so it's not me saying it, there's something more powerful about this world, our opportunities in this world, To change the world, to take a world of darkness, to take a world where our soul is normally hidden, and to bring it forth, that's much greater than than, than the world of consumption, the world of rest, the world of reward, where the soul is already unearthed and unsheathed for all to see. Perfecting this world is greater than basking in the joy in the unbridled pleasure of the next world. That's the difference between Shabbos candles and, and Hanukkah candles. Shabbos, of course, is the time, it's ulama ba. It's a measure of the world to come. The light of the Shabbos candles, it's akin to the light of the sun, the light of Olam haba, the light of rest, the light of consumption. The lights of Hanukkah are about this world. They're emblematic of bringing a penetrating light of the soul into the world of darkness. That explains all the differences between these two mitzvahs, the mitzvah of the Shabbos candle and the mitzvah of the Hanukkah candle. Hanukkah candles, we cannot use them. It's about work. It's about this world. Here is a time to do. Hayom la'asosa. Here we have to work. It's not about enjoying it. You cannot enjoy that light. This is the time where you're putting in the effort to create your spiritual world of eternity. Olam Shabbos, it's a time of consumption. It's a time where you're benefiting from the light that you created in this world. Shabbos, it's an inward-facing light. It's for you. What do we do in Hanukkah? We take the light that's in our house and we try to send it out to remind us we have a soul within time to send it out. That's your job. The job of Hanukkah or the midst of Hanukkah, the lights of Hanukkah are about reminding you you have the candle within you. It's your job to send it out. It's your job to disseminate and diffuse that light forward. Maybe we can even suggest, the Ram tells us that on Shabbos, you have to go fundraise to get your candles. But on Hanukkah, you have to do that, but you also have to sell your clothing. Maybe we can suggest that, you know, in Jewish sources, the body and the soul are often compared to the body and a garment. Like the, the body is a garment for our soul. Maybe we can posit that what it's hinting at is that on Hanukkah, it's your job to kind of sell your clothing. It's your job to take that external facade and remove it and try to expose what's really within you. That powerful light, that powerful candle, the powerful soul that you have within you since the days of creation. You know, there's a there's a joke. Why do the Jews eat such fattening foods on Hanukkah? Everything's fried and everything's so unhealthy for you. So the joke goes is that, well, the Greeks, they were so chiseled. And we want to say we're not going to be like those Greeks. We're going to eat all the fattening foods in the world and we'll make sure, we'll show them. Maybe there's a little bit of a kernel of truth to that. The Talmud tells us that to the degree that we obsess over our body, to the degree that we identify as a body, to that same degree, we're not a soul. Again, this is something that maybe it's above our level. But the Talmud says that we should try to avoid having good food. Before you pray that Torah should enter your innards, pray that good food and delicacies and delights don't enter your innards. Hanukkah is the time for us to sell our clothing. It's to try to shed ourselves of our exterior So that we can expose the tremendous beacon of light that we have within us. We know that the miracle happened with oil. Talmud tells us that there's three liquids to whom the Jewish people are compared. One of them is olive oil. Maybe we could suggest, there's probably a lot of meanings in that, you know, they say that the olive oil or the oil doesn't mix with water, no matter how much you spin them around. Because the Jewish people, we have to be a distinct nation. We we can't lose our identity, what makes us unique and special, by mixing. And therefore, that's maybe one of the lessons. But in addition, maybe we could suggest, just like you have an olive, if you look at the olive, you don't see any oil. If you look at the Jew, you don't see any Torah, you don't see any holiness, you don't see a soul. It's all there, but it's within you, and you have to do the work to bring it forth To access that soul and let the light of its candle. That was, by the way, initially on your head. It was initially on earth. Now it's hidden. Now it's dark. Now it's our job to expose it. I want to also note that in this week's parsha and the parshas that we always read on Hanukkah, it talks about Joseph. If you study the story of Joseph, Joseph is the paradigm, the exemplar of this idea of taking holiness and spreading it out. He's the one who is this, who is sent to Egypt. He's sent away. He's like the soul that originates in heaven and sent to this world. He comes from the family of Jacob, the family of Abraham, and he's sent to Egypt. He's sent to the darkness and he brings light to the darkness. In fact, that he's going to circumcise the whole Egypt. He's going to bring holiness to the world that doesn't initially have it. The bottom line is, in our life, our job is to ignite the candle. What happens if your candle goes out in Hanukkah? Kavsa, if it is extinguished, you don't have to worry about it. You know, at Aish they talk about changing the world. And of course, it's that's our mission. That's our national mission. That's our mandate. We're going to be a light to the nations. We're going to change the world. But the question that we could ask is, well, why don't we proselytize more? Why don't we do a better job at marketing? It's the only people in the world, only mission in the world. We want to change everyone. Oh, but we're going to be insular. Oh, hey, I'm on Adad It's like contradictory messages. Are we trying to spread the light or are we trying to, you know, to hold it within ourselves? It's a good question. But the answer is, is that our job is to not worry about the results. Let us light that fire, light that candle, and the Almighty is in charge of effectuating the change that's going to result from that candle. It's not our job; we do our job. Let him worry about his job. And by the way, if you look at the world today, we're pretty much on our way to uh, perfecting it. Rav Noach used to say that not everyone today believes in God, but if they do, it's the Jewish God. It's the Jewish God. And when Abraham emerged, his idea was so revolutionary. It it was it was so new and so bizarre because how could you believe in in one God, one invisible God that all the powers are coalesced into one entity? That was considered radical, innovative at the time. Now it's became standard. How did it happen? How do we how do we spread our message, despite not having a very good marketing campaign? I don't know what the answer to that question is. All I know is that our job, Hanukkah, you light the candles. Do your job. It's not your responsibility to telegraph how you're going to change the world, you do your responsibility. You know, we're here at Aisha Torah. Did you ever wonder why all the organizations involved in Jewish outreach have a name that's associated with light, with fire? You know, you have Aish, which means fire. You have Arsameach, the happy light. I work for an organization called Torch. I always say that we're the torch that, that upholds, we're the torch bearers that uphold all the fire. My grandfather, blessed memory, wrote a book on Jewish outreach. Eventually, he changed the name because people would always mispronounce the name. But the original title was Shalhevesya. It's a verse in scripture. Shalhevesya, which means the flame of God. That was the title of his book. Later, he switched it because no one knew what that means. Everyone would say Shalhevesya. What does Shalhevesya mean? It's Shalhevesia, the flame of God. Why are there so many light metaphors, candle metaphors, fire metaphors, associated with Jewish outreach? Because this is, this is the mission. The mission is we do have the candle. We do have the fire lurking within us. We're already there. The world is dark around us. It's hidden. And Hanukkah, it's about revealing the latent light amidst the darkness. In the future, Almaba, we won't be living in a world of darkness. In Omaba we'll have a different kind of light, the light of Shabbos. But what we could accomplish by beaming a beacon of light through the night, exposing and unearthing the soul that was initially covered up, that, like God comforted Aaron, is vastly greater. I hope that all of us internalize the message of Hanukkah. May we all merit to unearth and expose the light within us to tap into the candle of our soul and let its light shine forth this Hanukkah and throughout the rest of the year, Thank you so much for listening. <clears throat> my my email address is com. If you liked this presentation and want to hear more, I have six podcast channels on all kinds of subjects, nearly 800 episodes on the widest array of Jewish subjects. Hope you listen. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolbe. This was a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Chach Sameach.